One of the most common questions in my house is this, how are you doing? In the Popovitz house, we're asking each other that question all the time, how are you doing? The most common answer to that question is this, I'm tired, that's how I'm doing. That's the most common response. And we're not alone. I think it's fair to say that like the whole world is exhausted not just because of work and schedules with the kids, but because of COVID and pandemics, like all of it compounded together, the whole world is exhausted. And here's how you can tell. You can tell that we're exhausted by taking a look at the emojis that we use. Here are some of the most popular. And what do they all have in common? They're all people falling apart with exhaustion. They're all people falling asleep. Well, not just people. There's cats falling asleep. There's babies falling asleep. There's people from your favorite sitcom falling asleep. Everybody is exhausted. Let me give you some statistics about this. A recent study said this, that one in seven adults, just one in seven adults, or about 14%, have a set-aside day to rest. And that of those who do, who have that set-aside day, that most of them fill it with one thing. Want to guess what that is? Work. That's what they fill it with. It's not really a day of rest. It's true. So of those 14% who have a day of rest, 40% of them say that they fill it with enjoyable work. Another 37% of them say that they fill it with non-enjoyable work, which is just called work. Think, you know, painting the guest bathroom. Out of the 14% who said they have a dedicated day of rest, only 9%, so now we're talking a very small subset of all those people polled, only 19% say that they do no work at all. Here's the conclusion. Everybody needs a nap. Everybody needs a nap because even when we are resting, we are doing, which is why we're all exhausted. So today, we're continuing a teaching series called Trading Up, where we're talking about trading in some of the things that we naturally carry in our hands and receiving some of the things that Jesus has invited us to lay hold of with his life, things that he's won for us and earned for us through his death and resurrection that we as his people get to enjoy, but we have to hand him the bad thing and trade up for something better. And today, we're talking about trading up from exhaustion to rest. Now, as I was wrestling with this, one of the things that I was, I was questioning is, where does all this exhaustion come from? Because it doesn't simply come from the calendar, although that's a big factor. It doesn't come from your boss. It doesn't really even come from the culture alone. It doesn't come from your kids and their demands. It comes from one particular place, at least if you're a person of faith. This is what our worldview says. The exhaustion that we feel while connected to all those other things, is ultimately because of one thing. It's because of what we call the curse. Way back in the beginning of the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, if you grew up going to church, you know the story. Mankind rebelled against God, and it led to this fracturing of all things. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, but also our relationship to activity, our relationship to work, and to labor, and to life in this world, it's part of the punishment of our rebellion. God allows us to feel what he calls a curse when it comes to our activity in this broken world. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, this is God speaking to Adam and Eve. He says, cursed is the ground because of you, 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Uh, This is kind of a fancy way of saying life is going to be hard. Like the most basic fundamental of things, feeding yourself, not going to be easy. Work. Now, work in and of itself is divine. It's good. It's of God. It existed before the fall, but now after the fall, work's going to be painful. Existence in this world, riddled with sin, comes with a curse. It's just going to be hard. Now, it's further complicated by the fact that not only is there this this curse in this broken world that life is just naturally now difficult, but it's complicated by the fact that us being sinful, broken human beings, we lie to ourselves in the midst of this world. And one of the many lies we tell ourselves is this, that we can escape the curse. If we only do what? Work harder. If we try harder, things will be easier. Life will get better. We'll escape the curse. And we pay a whole lot of, you know, influencers and authors and executive coaches a whole lot of money to help us essentially lift the curse. But in the end, what does it do? What do we do? We end up with a longer list of things to do, which only ends up making us more exhausted. That's where the exhaustion comes from. Life carries a curse and we lie to ourselves. Oh, you can escape it. Just do more, try harder, be better, and you'll get out from under the curse. But here's what people of faith need to remind themselves, that God does not promise us an escape from the curse, at least not until Christ comes back and remakes all things. God does not promise us an escape from the curse this side of eternity. He just promises that he will help us endure in the midst of it. God doesn't promise escape. He promises endurance. He doesn't promise an easier life. That comes at the end when Jesus returns. But now God is still gracious. Here's what he did. Knowing that we would be tired and knowing that we would carry this curse of a difficult life, knowing we would complicate it by lying to ourselves and saying, oh, if I just try harder, I'll escape it. Knowing we would be exhausted, he gives us a gift, an invitation that will help us endure. The gift he gives, the invitation he offers is an invitation to rest. Rest is a gift of God so that you might endure the difficulties of this world. Now, when I say that word rest, what comes to mind for you? Like what instantly fills your brain? Maybe for you it's an image of sitting on the beach, sipping a drink, or on the back patio with a cigar in hand. Or perhaps when I say the word rest, your first image is of a nap. Not just a quick nap, like a glorious nap, the kind of nap where you wake up and you worry that you're going to be late for school even though you're 46. (laughs) Forget who you are for a little bit. That kind of a nap. When I think of rest, you know what comes to mind for me? Some numbers. 746 comes to mind for me. 746 is one minute after my youngest goes to bed. (laughs) What comes to mind for you when you think of rest? Now, now here's what God has in mind when he gives us the gift of rest so that we might endure in this broken world. God's gift of rest, you could say, is twofold. It is an invitation to form a habit and to adopt an attitude. It's an invitation to form a habit, so something that you do, 
but also to adopt an attitude, a way to see this world as you live within it. And this is where these two scriptures come from. Exodus chapter 20, Matthew 11. Let me read these again. This is God speaking. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord your God. God commands of his people a day of literal rest to form a habit of stopping the doing. Whatever your doing is, stop it. That's God's invitation to his people. And then Jesus comes along, and on top of this invitation to physically stop the labor, there is this invitation to see the world through the lens of his love and have a rest of heart and a rest of mind, what Jesus calls a rest of the soul. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my burden of expectation upon you and learn from me. What you're going to learn is I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The Sabbath is rest for the body. Jesus is rest for the soul. And you are trading up from exhaustion for rest when you aim to adopt the habit of ceasing your doing and adopt the attitude informed by the love of Jesus. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Let's start with forming the habit of rest. There is intended by God to be a time on your calendar where you, as his people, you cease from the labors of this world. Did you know that God is the one who invented the weekend? It's built in to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. God is the one who works and then he stops. Thank you, Lord, for inventing the weekend. His intention is for there to be a point in our lives, a point in each and every week where we cease from the labors of this world. And I could give you all kinds of data on the health benefits of this, but it's like painfully obvious that it's probably good for you to not just keep going and doing all of the time. And some of you are like, well, I'm just built different. I can't. I have to. No, you're not built different. You need to rest. Now, now here's God's reason for, for setting aside a day, a moment for us to cease from our labors. God's reason is twofold. I would say that it's this. It's so that we might, by resting, by doing nothing, we might delight in his gifts and defy the world. Let me explain what I mean by that. You're invited to form the habit in rest of delighting in the gifts that God has given to you. It's not as though you just sit in a chair in the corner. What did God do on the day that he rested? He enjoyed what he had made. And his intention for us is for us to, in our resting, to delight in the gifts that he has given to us. A moment of not laboring, not doing, just enjoying. Enjoying the kids, enjoying the home he's given you, enjoying a glass of wine, a great book. And did you know that delighting in the gifts that God has given is an act of worship? When you enjoy a gift that God has given to you with a heart of faith, recognizing that ultimately it comes from him and it's meant to be enjoyed and your heart fills with praise. And as you spend time with the kids or you read that book or you sip the glass of wine or you walk the golf course, yes, it's okay to golf, guys. Tell your wife I said so. 
As you do these things with a heart of faith and you say, thank you, Lord, that's an act of worship, the enjoyment. As you cease from your regular work and you enjoy what God has given, that's an act of worship. You're not just lounging at the pool. It's a little bit of church. You're not just playing golf. You're praising God. It's also, it's also an act of cultural rebellion. We live in a world trying to escape the curse that in many and various ways is saying, do, go, try harder, keep pressing, keep pushing, you have to. It's been a while since you've posted something. Do you even matter? Do you actually exist? In a thousand different forms, we're told all the time, keep going, keep producing. In a world like that, to pause and produce nothing, but instead to enjoy what you've been given is an act of defiance. Mary Bell was an executive coach and she said that achievement is the new alcohol. We abuse our schedules the way we like to abuse drink. To resist, to rest rather, is to resist the lie that your identity is found in productivity. Let me say that again. To rest is to resist the lie that your identity is found in productivity. So now let me ask the question, what is stopping you if you struggle with this? And again, I, I only ever preach sermons to myself and let everybody else listen, okay? What is stopping you from carving out some time to trade up to rest, physical rest. I mean, I get it, like you're busy, we're all busy, but I don't think the issue is actually our schedules. Here's what I found is true for me. I take time for that which I treasure. So I have to ask myself, do I really treasure this invitation to rest? Do I also treasure my own well-being that can come with it? God invites us to form a habit of pausing, and it's so hard. And in our pausing, to delight in the gifts that he's given and to defy the lies of this world. But it's not just about that. It's about adopting an attitude of rest, a way of living and moving in the world that is informed by the love and the work of Jesus. Now, lots could be said about Matthew chapter 11, these couple of verses there, but I think it comes down to two things. When you, when you see the world through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ, it, it means that you walk then through the world resisting or rather refusing urgency and receiving grace. When the implications of what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished for us come home to our hearts, it gives us an attitude of rest which is one of refusing urgency and receiving grace. Now, here's what I mean by that. When I say refusing urgency, it doesn't mean that you're just floating through life as though nothing is important. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, and this is, this is uh, kind of ripe in our age, what I'm talking about is existential urgency. Have you noticed that, that everybody wants you to see everything as high stakes? You really should buy this car or else. 
I mean, you got to get your kid into a good college. Or else, you should vote for this guy. Or else, have you posted anything online in a while? You really should post something. Or else, you should pursue your joy. You should find your passion. You should unlock your potential. You should live your best life. You should. You must. Or else, the stakes are high. That is existential urgency, believing that my productivity is connected to my worth, my identity, my very existence in this world. Bertrand Russell, the mathematician, philosopher, and a whole lot of other things, not a Christian, but apparently with some worldly wisdom, said this, one of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. This is not how Jesus rolls. Jesus does not deal in existential pressure. He deals in abiding peace. What Jesus says is, I have overcome the world. And if Jesus has overcome the world, then none of the things that you face, including your need to produce and be efficient and be, be seen as productive, none of those things are the end of the world. A heart that's at rest refuses to believe that everything is urgent, but instead chooses to pivot to the truth that everything is in Jesus' hands. Likewise, a heart that's at rest is a heart that is actively receiving God's grace to them through Jesus and offering it to other people. Here's the thing about a world that doesn't know how to rest. A world that doesn't know how to rest is a world that loves to condemn because they feel their own need to constantly do and be and produce, their, their own feelings that they're not enough, their shortcomings, their failures are always in front of them and they want you to see your shortcomings and your failures too. There's no grace in a world that's all about doing. But Jesus is not a God of condemnation, he's a God of mercy. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light because he says to us, you are not defined by what you've done or what you've failed to do. You are, you are defined, you are what I give to you. A heart at rest is a heart that, that seeks to replace the voice that says, not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough, with the voice of Jesus saying to you, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I love you anyway. Rest is an attitude of heart that refuses existential urgency and leans into the grace that is theirs and that is others through Jesus Christ. Now, now with all that said, what that means is that, that trading up from exhaustion to rest, trying to form the habit and adopt the attitude as a follower of Jesus is a profound expression of your faith. Again, speaking to myself, rest feels risky. Rest feels risky because I'm told all the time that the stakes are so high and because I, like you, we all want to escape the pain of this cursed, broken world. And so resting can feel like dying. I get it. And one of my fears, personally, window into my soul, one of my fears is being seen as unproductive, inefficient, or unsuccessful. And so the notion of not doing or of just saying, I didn't do enough, but Jesus loves me anyway, feels like dying at times. And what I have to remember 
is the promise of Jesus. What is the great promise of Jesus? Your work is never done, but the promise of Jesus is that the most important work is done. That's the promise of Jesus. The work of restoring your relationship with the Father, fractured in the beginning, is done. The work of securing you and me a future in a world where there is no more curse is done. It's done, it's completed, and it's given to you. It is yours. It's all fixed and given to you by Jesus. And so if we believe that, then how do we express that? Do you believe that Jesus has done, completed the work that matters most? Do you believe that Jesus has done and completed the work that matters most? So then how do we express that? By stepping away from our own. If I believe that his work is the most important, that his work saves me, then I can express my faith in that by stepping away from my own and putting down the device and taking my eyes off the to-do list and I can take the invitation to trade up and to try and form a habit where I pause and adopt an attitude where I reject urgency and I give myself The believer who is able to rest offers the world one of the clearest demonstrations of the gospel. Because in our rest, we accomplish nothing. Yet we believe that God in Jesus Christ loves us anyway. That's the gospel. So let me, let me give you just a couple of practical things. If you, are, if you are looking to grow in this as I am, adopting this habit of ceasing from our doing and, and adopting this attitude informed by the love of Jesus, here's a handful of things that are currently helpful to me. They may be helpful to you. Number one, start small. Don't, don't plan a 10-day trip to the Caribbean. Just be like, Pastor Matt said to rest 10 days on a beach. That's, that's, that's often not rest. You often come back from that needing more rest from your rest. That's work, and that's expensive. And start small. Think about two hours this week where you delight in the gift of God that he's given to you. Two hours or 20 minutes each morning where you delight in the gift that God has given you. A moment where you don't do the things that are so needful and urgent, but you delight in something you already have. Start small. What could you do? Second, super helpful for me, plan it and protect it. Like, like put it on your calendar thing, whatever that is for you, and protect it by telling other people about it. Hey, this, this 20 minutes of of not doing all this other stuff is really, really important to me. And so when, when later in the day they catch you not doing nothing, they can say, hey, what happened to doing nothing? I thought that was really important. You can say, oh, yeah, that's right. Accountability is key. Third, and again, this might sound obvious, God has built in a day of the week. We just so happen to be in it right now where we're called to rest. Enjoy Sunday. Enjoy Sunday. 
I know that the list at home is long. I know that getting ready for Monday takes time. I get that. I'm not saying you don't do those things, but what would it mean, what would it look like if you made this day a weekly celebration of the gifts that God has given you? Where it was less about getting things done for Monday and more about feasting at mealtime or making a memory with the kids or saying no to something urgent and just enjoying something that's present and good, what would it look like if you did more of that? What if you lived in such a way that your kids thought Sunday was the best day of the week? Not just because you came to church, but because the whole attitude in your home was one of delight. What would it look like? What if you ate ice cream before dinner on Sundays? Because God is real, his grace is good, and Jesus is alive, and you can, and your diet be damned. <laughs> Enjoy Sundays. And then lastly, this is the one that, that I preach to myself all the time. Allow for okay and add joy to essential activities. There are some things you have to do that are always going to have to be done, that are always in front of you. And so to adopt a habit of rest and an attitude of rest from Jesus might mean for you allowing for okay in certain activities rather than amazing or excellent every time. And then infusing that that essential activity, infusing that essential activity with something that you love. You might not love the essential activity, but you might be able to do that with something else or give something else to yourself as a reward for accomplishing that thing and thereby infusing it with some joy. If you see me at Slowpokes writing a sermon, that is me infusing an essential activity with caffeine, donuts, and joy. That's me trying to live this out. Make an allowance for okay. It's good enough. I'll close with this. Did you know that the first full day for humanity was a day of rest? God made all things. On the sixth day, he made humanity. He made man and woman, and he, he placed us in the garden. He gave us work to do. He gave us tasks. This is all before the fall into sin. He puts us in the garden. He introduces man to woman, woman to man. It's a big day, but it's not their first full day. They were made at some point on the sixth day. They get introduced to their livelihood and their partner, and then they go to sleep. And their first night they go to sleep, they wake up, that first morning is their first full day of humanity, but it's what day for God? It's the seventh day for God. And what does God do on the seventh day? He rests and he commands it to this new creation called humanity and he invites them into it. So the first full day that humanity experiences is a day of being invited into rest and delight and enjoyment with God. If you wrestle with that, that's profound. What should that say about what it means to be human and made in God's image? What it tells me, among many other things, is this, that God is so merciful and kind. He knew that we would fall. He knew that there would be a curse. And he knew that we would exhaust ourselves trying to escape that curse impossibly. And so before we needed it, offered it. He modeled it. He commanded it. Rest. 
Before we knew we needed it, he gave it to us so that we might be able to endure in this difficult world. May we continue to try to adopt the habit and embrace the attitude. May we trade up from exhaustion and feel free to rest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and compassion to us. We thank you that you have built in, instilled, instilled into this world the need, the need to cease from our labors. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you've made it safe to do so. He's, he's fought the battles and done the work that matters most, and we are now free to actually cease from our doing and simply enjoy the grace that you've given and the gifts that you shower us in. Help us, especially those of us who really struggle with rest, help us to, to believe this invitation, to believe these words a little, more, a little more deeply after today. Help us to believe that the greatest of work is done so that we can be done from ours and to enjoy the world, the life, the people, the grace that you've given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.